Mecham Auctions, the world's largest collector car auction company, returns to Indy with Dana Mecham's 37th Original Spring Classic, May 10th through the 18th at the Indiana State Fairground. 3,000 muscle cars, Corvettes, exotics, and more. Broadcast on Motor Trend TV and streaming live on Max. From avid collectors to those new to the Mecham experience, we welcome everyone. Register to bid now at Mecham.com. Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline from Bally Sports, Indiana. Pacers on the road in Miami tonight. Jeremiah Johnson joins us. What's the temperature this afternoon down in Miami? Do I want to know? Uh, high 70s. A little windy, but it's a nice breeze, so no complaints in South Florida per normal. Yeah, last time the Pacers were down there, no complaints either. Think this is a place where they can dig out of this road losing skid that they're currently riding? It was crazy in thinking about this game and preparing that you realize the Patriots have not won on the road since they were down here, and the building's changed names since then. That was December 23rd. Obviously, a lot of factors go into that for the, I think it's nine straight road losses. But I do think that the situation and the scenario is set up for them to play well. The Heat are a little bit shorthanded. No Kyle Lowry, no Victor Oladipo. They've got some other maybe minor injuries. And the Pacers are fully healthy. They're rested. Both teams actually are rested. I think the Heat have not played since Saturday. The Pacers last played on Sunday. But in terms of sense of urgency, it has to be there for the Pacers, not just in this game, but over the next five. Because you were sitting there at sixth in the Eastern Conference. Tyrese Halliburton got injured, and now you're in a three-way tie for 10th. And Miami's the team that is currently in sixth. So there still is time to make that ground up. But uh, the more time that ticks away – you put a week off of the calendar, there's that much uh, less opportunity. So I think they'll be ready to play, and we'll see what they have tonight. So I'm not going to be deprived of the uh, Kyle Lowry head bob every time anybody comes near him <laughs> to try to draw the foul, I guess. He's not playing tonight. That's sad. I know. It's unfortunate. I, it's one of my pet peeves as well. He's not the only one that does it, but it seems like he's been doing it the longest. Jimmy Butler will still give you – He's still he'll still draw a foul. So I'm sure in this game – if you're really interested in in looking for that trick, that veteran trick to yeah. draw a foul. You'll see it from Jimmy Butler. Yeah, that drives me nuts too. By the way, and this is Lowry injured, or because you hear a lot of rumors about how he wants out and they want to get rid of him. Yeah, I mean, it'd be hard for me to say that for sure. I'm, I think he's injured. In fact, I'll just look at the latest injury report for you right now. It looks like the injury is left knee soreness for Kyle Lowry, and they did say, I think over the weekend that he'd miss the next two to three games. And so, uh, who knows? It's been pretty pretty quiet at the trade deadline outside of the Kyrie Irving trade earlier in the week. And so, we'll see what happens just 24 hours from now. We will know everything. So, yeah, it's funny. Uh, we'll see if Kyle Lowry is on the move. The LeBron James game of last night becoming the NBA's all-time leading scorer, he squashed basically all the leftovers of Kyrie Irving and – I think kind of going into the trade deadline coming up tomorrow as well. Did it not? And it took all the attention away from the Super Bowl as well. I mean, it's, it's, it's the big story of the week. And I think when you consider that accomplishment and, and the longevity, and really that is one of the marks that has stood the test of time with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, I think it deserves the attention. But now with about 24 hours until the trade deadline, I think some of the rumors and some of the activity – We'll probably start to pick up, who knows, from a Pacers perspective where things will go. But I expect you'll start to see some some Woj and some Shams tweets coming out at some point around the NBA in the next few hours into tomorrow. 
It's, it's interesting. I don't know if anything Pacer-wise, I know this is tough for you to even talk about, but anything Pacer-wise happens. I had said this, though, and I know you can speak to this, is that people often are described this time of year as buyers or sellers. And in this case, the Pacers are builders. So to me, if it's something that makes sense that you feel both economically and as far as personnel might be concerned, that that is a nice fit, doesn't matter. Doesn't mean you're going straight at the postseason and playing for the now. You're still playing for the future. So I think you're allowed to be, in the case of the Pacers at the trade deadline, a builder. That's a pretty good explanation. I'll have to borrow that if I'm asked from anyone else because it is. Now use that tonight. Use that tonight on yeah. the broadcast. Would you a builder? They're, yeah. They're not buyers or sellers. Sellers. They are builders, and so they are building for the future. And I even said on my podcast today that I think it's that 24-25 season that you may have circled. You think you've already made some improvements this season. You'll make another step forward next season, and and you want to have the best roster you can have for maybe that that 24-25 season. And if there is a deal to be made in the next 24 hours that can help you put that best team together for that season, then you do it. But I think that Kevin Pritchard uh, was pretty – you know, he's pretty on the record in terms of saying after Miles Turner signed his contract extension that he isn't sure what's going to happen. He'll listen to all offers. And if, if maybe if there's something that can help continue to build this team in the right direction, he will listen. But I think Rick Carlisle also said something that was pretty accurate, that if Miles Turner had not signed, things would be a lot different heading into this trade deadline. So once they got Miles locked up and a deal signed, it does – change a little bit from their perspective of what they have to do there isn't really that sense of urgency now and and Kevin Pritchard has said that he likes to maybe make more deals in the summer than than during a season and so that's that's all we have to go by and we'll have to wait and see if anything else happens he's Jeremiah Johnson Valley Sports Indiana Heat Pacers coming up later on tonight and it's it's kind of interesting that's a a phrase that I gave you that I I kind of like or a description of this time of year uh, one phrase that I have really now started to really loathe whenever I hear it is the entertaining loss. I hate the entertaining loss and is why. Like there was nothing really redeeming, I thought, in that loss to Cleveland the other day. However, when you go back, you know, the game before Sacramento was the Laker game, and people say, you know, it was really entertaining, but it was a loss, and that's okay. I think that there is a great deal, J.J., of value with this group of closing games when you're there to close it. And I think that it takes away when you don't. And while I understand everybody's thought of where they want to be in the draft, we can think about that in June. But when you're in the moment in the fourth and you have an opportunity to close a game, whether it's at home or on the road, I want to see this group do it, and I'm going to be disappointed, J.J., if they don't. Yeah, I I think I follow along the same lines of thinking that you do because this wasn't a season that I was – I was wanting them to experience some success, and I think there's nothing that helps in in building a team – better than to achieve success on the court and build that way and I think they had some real momentum in terms of closing games out before Tyrese Halliburton was injured and it would be tough to just expect the first game or two back in three and four nights when he returned after being out for three weeks for them to immediately be excellent at closing games out they struggled late against the Lakers maybe struggled a little bit offensively against the Kings but they played really good defense down the stretch to win that game and so what you hope is that 
you have those three games, and then over this next five-game stretch before the All-Star break, you can get back to that team that, that won 8 of 10 and won a game in Boston and won in Miami and played really well in the fourth quarters of those games. So I agree with you. I'm glad that I've not said entertaining loss on any post-game shows yeah, this season. I'll so be pissed if you do. It Don't do it. me who has said it. I, I have said a lot of times doing the halftime show – that it whether it's an entertaining first half and sometimes the Pacers when they've struggled early they've played well late and when they've gotten off to good starts maybe they haven't been able to close things out so the biggest thing to me outside of closing games that are close in the fourth quarter is is just being able to play start to finish you're always going to have some lapses in a game but there are some quarters that tend to be problematic and that's what you have to eliminate yeah there's no doubt about that JJ is with us can you detect at all any frustration and there are a couple of guys in this case, and I don't see it from Isaiah Jackson. I really haven't noticed too much in Jalen Smith, but especially in terms of Jalen Smith falling out of the rotation, have you noticed any frustration from him, a guy that was playing and playing well when this team was playing well, and once they go small, he's kind of fallen you know, out of the rotation in this case. Is, is he still going at it business as usual from what you've seen? Yeah, and some of the practices I've seen, he's been going as hard as anyone, and he has probably stayed as late as anyone working on his game. So he is, if you get a chance to talk with him, and we've been able to do that a little bit more this season than last season, he's one of the nicest guys. You think back to that game against Orlando when he got really right. fired up, but he, he is a really just, in general, nice guy. And he has said to us in the last couple of weeks that he understands he's still a young player in this league and he is still figuring things out. And so... Uh, you know, from what I've observed, I've not seen any outward frustrations. He and Isaiah Jackson both have been pretty supportive of their teammates. I'm sure that they wish they were playing, and it's tough to not play and then go in and maybe have a two- or three-minute stretch, and then you put so much pressure on yourself to perform. Now, I'm not going to say that they're every single player that's on that bench and occasionally getting a DNP, they're, they're not all going to be happy with it, but those two players specifically that you mentioned, I think they've handled it, handled it pretty well, and I think they do have – the big picture in mind second year for Isaiah Jackson third year for Jalen Smith and there's just a glut of centers on the roster right now so we'll see if that um, works itself out over the next couple of days as well JJ with us what do you think about before we let you go here tonight's matchup once again we talked about last time these two teams were at it and there's no doubt this would be a great moment for the Pacers to get back on the winning track on the road for the first time before Christmas it would. And, you know, there's a little bit of a similarity to this matchup and the one the Pacers had on Sunday with Cleveland because neither the Cavs nor the Heat want to get out and play a fast-paced game. The Pacers, against teams like that, really want to get as many fast-break opportunities as they can, uh, execute early in the shot clock, and, and not get in a half-court game. And in the three games against the Heat this season, the Pacers have two wins. And I think in those two wins, you had the 43 for Halliburton and 22 for Tyrese Halliburton. In the loss, he scored one point and was 0 for 9. And so I'm not going to put all the pressure on Tyrese Halliburton, but I think if it's anywhere between 22 and 43, the Pacers will be in good uh, a good position. He doesn't have to score for this team to succeed, but you, you can't have a single-digit night because once he's knocking down shots, it does open up everything else for his teammates. So if you can get a 20 or 20-10 20 night from Halliburton and Miles Turner continues to play consistent 
Miami, I think a position because Miami's good, but they're not unbeatable at home as the Pacers showed in late December. That's a 7.30 tip time, 7 o'clock tonight, Ballet Sports, Indiana. And you'll see him, and he'll maybe use what I talked about being a builder, not necessarily a buyer or a seller. That'll make me really happy if you use that tonight. Really happy. <laughs> Not a buyer, not a seller. They're a builder. Builder. There we go. I'm going to practice right over the next few hours. 7P tonight for that pregame show. JJ, thank you. All right. Thanks, John. Uh, With a quote from Rick Carlisle saying it's very doubtful anything happens at the NBA trade deadline regarding the Pacers. We'll follow any of the other stories that are going on there as well. But on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline, you can catch him all the time on the Big Ten Network doing a fantastic job of the analyst work and more regarding College Hoop and the Big Ten. Rafael Davis joins us now. Rafael, thanks for the time. How are you? Appreciate you having me on. I'm glad to be here. All right. Good. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. I, I want to start last night, and a lot of people, Rafael, were saying this regarding IU. It was more about the way the Rutgers played and too physical. And I don't like that brand of basketball and you know the whole Mokehi thing where people thought that he intentionally tried to trip Trace Jackson Davis. And I put all of that to the side and said, listen, this is a part of the growth of this IU team that we're seeing because under circumstances like that in the past that's a game we have seen it against Rutgers that IU would lose last night they hung together they stayed physical and got through it I just thought it was more of a plus in the whole development of the IU team than I was really about the style of play that Steve Peichel and Rutgers has oh yeah I'm not you can't complain about the way Rutgers plays that's Big Ten basketball that's everything you want if you're a Big Ten fan I mean this is the the Big Ten Conference. It's supposed to be physical. It's supposed to be tough. No, you're not supposed to go out there and try and intentionally hurt someone. You're not supposed to try and trip someone, but you're supposed to go out there and fight, and you're supposed to take the fight to your opponent, and that's what Rutgers did. That's what Rutgers did in that first game in Piscataway, New Jersey. They took the fight right to Indiana. They fought Indiana, and it's as simple as that. They were plus 14 on the glass. They had 17 offensive rebounds. Rutgers was plus 10 in the paint in that game. And that was a game that Clifford Morey got in foul trouble. Only played 20 minutes. And Indiana knew. I mean, you know, when you play Rutgers, it's like when I was in school, when I played at Purdue, when you play a Michigan State team, you prepare for that all week. You prepare. Coach tells you they're going to hit you. They're going to foul you. They're tough. They're physical. So you prepare for that all week. And Indiana got a taste of that earlier this season. And they went out there last night, and they threw the first punch. They punched Rutgers right in the mouth. They took the fight right to Rutgers. They didn't wait to try to break the physicality of the game, man. It was fun to see. I mean, they flipped it. They flipped the matchup. They out-rebounded Rutgers in this one. They got offensive rebounds the second chance points. They ended up turning Rutgers over only 10 times, which isn't crazy in the college game. But Indiana turned those 10 turnovers in the 17 points, got out of transition, they shot 24 free throws. I mean, Indiana, they, they completely flipped that matchup, and they pulled a Rutgers on Rutgers. <laughs> that makes sense. So, Rafael Davis of Big Ten Networks on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Speaking of flipping the script, I thought we saw that on late Saturday afternoon, early Saturday night in Bloomington with IU and Purdue round number one because we constantly hear talk about the support offensively for Trace Jackson Davis, which was there for him on that Saturday at Assembly Hall. And with what we have seen in the past was not there for Zach Eady 
uh, and company up there. It was Zach Eady and really nothing else. What do you attribute that to? Was it start to finish, IU defense against Purdue, or other things that you witnessed? Uh, I wouldn't say start to finish because, I mean, you look at the second half and Purdue won the second half by 10. I think it was 39 to 29 that second half. TJD only had seven points in that half. Hussefino really took that game over. Hussefino was a difference, in my opinion. Down the stretch, Hussefino was awesome. He had 12 of his 16 points came in the second half, and he got the ball exactly where it needed to go down the stretch. They struggled to make shots. He got downhill and made big plays. But I think it was all about the start of that game. I think Indiana came out, and again, just like I said about Rutgers, they punched Purdue right in the mouth. And that's those first five minutes, that first half, TJD really set the tone. TJD having 18 points going. I think he wins. I don't know if he, I don't think he missed a shot in that first half. He just, he was phenomenal. And the energy, they got out and ran. I mean, they turned Purdue over. Purdue is a team that normally doesn't turn the ball over. Coach Painter tries to have around nine, ten turnovers per game. Well, they had 11 turnovers in the first half. And Indiana's pressure, it really bothered them. I mean, Galloway being the start lineup, playing more minutes, it helps Indiana. I mean, he's six, five, six, four, six, five, tough, bigger defender. He was able to get up and flesh a lawyer or push him out. And with Purdue, if you push that initial catch out, if you push that initial catch that they want to start their offense with, if they're not two feet on that three-point line, if you push them out towards half court, it's harder to feed Zach Eady. It's harder to get the big fella the basketball. And that's what Indiana did. Zach Eady's best offense in that first half was going to get a rebound and going to finish it. It was not too many times where they could get a clean post-feed to him. And when they did, they forced Zach to turn it over. Zach had five turnovers in the game. Purdue ended up having 16 turnovers for the game. And um, Indiana's get 20 points off of those turnovers. Purdue misses seven free throws. Indiana makes 15 of their 18. I mean, that's the difference in the game. But I thought Hood Shapino, down the stretch, when Indiana needed something, he got it for him. And I think if um, you've got an NBA top level guard at Hood Shapino, Trey Jackson Davis playing with this type of energy, you've got Miller Cops, who had a very quiet, just a quiet 18 last night. The Indiana team, they're clicking at the right time. I go back to that Northwestern game, Trey Jackson Davis in the press conference, he called his teammates out. He said, Coach Woodson had a great game plan, the guys just didn't follow it. And then they went to Penn State, and they got thumped. <laughs> so ever since then, there's been a change. And I think it started with TJD calling that players-only meeting or team meeting, whatever you want to call it. I've been in those. Those aren't, those aren't very friendly meetings. And I think it's, everything has changed since then. But I think it started with TJD. His, um, his tenacity, his intensity, everything that you think about outside of just scoring the ball for him has risen. He's gotten a lot tougher. And not saying he wasn't a tough guy, but now he's playing with that type of moxie. He's playing with that type of edge, and it's feeding into the rest of those guys. Uh, and they're back to they're back to defending at us. Indiana was the best defensive team in Big Ten last year. They were a better defensive team than Rutgers, and they just for some reason they just decided not to defend this year. And now they're back to it. And now they're making shots, which was what helped them back last year. It could be scary. I talked to Trace last week, and I, I said to him I didn't. I didn't think you were going to be the type of vocal 
on the floor, which is what we see, leader that he is kind of morphed into, you know, transitioned into here. I, I think that aspect has helped him out a great deal. And he made the point to talk about how it was Mike Woodson that told him, this is what you need to be. You're the guy. You lead by example on this team. You need to lead by example both on the floor and vocally, which is what he's done. No, I mean, I, and I go back to my time at Purdue, and I see Trace Jackson Davis, different player than I was, but Pate had just made me a captain my sophomore year, and I did all the right things off the floor. And I was doing what I was supposed to do. I was handling my business, and Pate came to me and said, you got to talk. Now you're a captain, you got to lead, not just by your actions, but with your words. If you're doing the right things, you got to say the right things. And if you're saying the right things, because a lot of guys that give you lip service, they'll say the right things, but then they, they just do whatever they want to do when you're not around. So it's all about getting those guys to do both. And TJD, they needed this. TJD, I don't, I don't know. I haven't talked to him today. But I'm assuming that if he could trade 2,000 points, 1,000 rebounds in for a trip to the Final Four and a chance to win a national championship and leave Indiana in that light, I, I would say he trades it in just because I think he's a winner. And I think um, he figured out what his team needed for him, which was his leadership, which was him getting into guys, yelling at guys. I mean, really just taking that team over and not being satisfied with losing. He is not satisfied with losing. And he is getting the best effort from everybody. But my high school coach, Coach Greg Taylor, used to tell me all the time, your best player, he has to be your hardest worker or her, or, and they have to be tough. And because everybody on that team is looking to you. When you get in a tough spot, when you get in a close game, your dog has got to eat. And Trey Jackson Davis, he's been eating. Because since, I don't know if you remember that Arizona game, where Indiana got ran out of the gym. He went, TJD went 15 minutes. Or like, one of those guys, he went 15 minutes without attempting a field goal in the second half. So, I don't, I don't see that ever happening the rest of this year. He's um. He's been outstanding. Zach Eady's been outstanding. It's just um, college basketball is better when Purdue and Indiana are both good during the same year. It's Roberts and Kevin. Well, yeah, I thought that, too, on Saturday. I mean, when, when both teams are good – and when both teams are confident like that, it just makes for a better game, a great atmosphere that obviously we'll see again coming up on the 25th at Mackey Arena in West Lafayette. Rafael Davis joins us. Before I let you go, give me – and I know there's a log jam at 7-5. and five. you got IU and, and Rutgers at 8-5, and five, and then Purdue at 11-2 and two, still firmly atop the Big Ten. But if there is a surprise in the Big Ten this year with where they are, present time, and the standings and the way they played, who would that be for you? Good surprise or bad surprise? Or both? <laughs> One more time? I said, do you want a good surprise or would you like a bad no, surprise? No, no, yeah, go ahead and go both, man. I, I trust you in going both here. Be versatile. I like it. I would go for a good surprise. I got to go with Northwestern. I give a shout-out to Trey Dix uh, with the Big Ten Network, Dave Remsen, those guys. Uh, Northwestern. No one expected them to be where they are right now, even competing for a tournament bid. I mean, Coach Collins was on the hot seat if you really just want to get down to the to what really was going on. And they lost Ryan Young. They lost Pete Nance to Duke, North Carolina, and they're right there in the middle of the Big Ten fighting for a chance for a postseason bid. And the growth of Chase Aldees has been outstanding to watch, man. I mean, 
he's calmed down on offense, he's taking good shots, he's being efficient on that end, and then defensively, he's turned himself into maybe the defensive player of the year, if not right there next to Caleb McConnell as the two best defensive guards in the Big Ten. So they'll fight you, they'll defend you. Nicholson has gotten better throughout the year. Huge game tonight against Ohio State on the road to really yeah. kind of solidify their chances of making that tournament. But Northwestern has got to be that team. And then on the negative end, I'm going to go Ohio State. I mean, Ohio State, even though they shouldn't have counted it, they beat Rutgers. They were shot away from beating Purdue. And since that Purdue game, it's like Purdue broke them a little bit. They, they have some things going on that shouldn't be. That they have older guys as their key. Justice Swing, Eugene Brown, and those guys. Tanner Holt has been around college basketball a while. McNeil, likely. They know what goes on in college basketball, whether it's at Ohio State or not. And then they have a really talented freshman class, which Bryce Sissonball is probably the best freshman in the Big Ten. Bruce Thornton, I got to watch him a lot of high school. He's going to be a really good player. But for some reason, that ball has started to stick. This is one of the – this is a top ten – most efficient offense in the country before they play Purdue. And now, in their last game, they had six assists. So their last eight games, they've had more turnovers than assists. And that's just not characteristic of a Chris Holman team. And I, I think they can still – in the Big Ten, you still have chances to figure it out. They can go on a run, win some games, take some momentum into the Big Ten tournament. Ohio State is a team that they win the Big Ten tournament. I don't think I would be surprised. But it's just a matter of them figuring it out. But those two teams stand out to me. So, Rayfeld Davis, when are you back on the Big Ten Network? I was on this morning, and I'm back on Sunday. I'll be, uh, I'll be on the Big Ten Network Sunday. I'll be calling a high school game, a prep school game on Friday with the NIBC, and uh, that's been going well, too. Awesome. Well, you're always great to come on with us. I appreciate that. We'll check back in later on in the season, and uh, we'll watch for you coming up on BTN on Sunday as well. Rafael, thank you as always. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me. Meantime, Andy Moore, Automotive Group Hotline from the morning show, Kevin Inquiry, weekday morning, 7 until 10 a.m. Kevin Bowen joins us. I'm curious your thoughts. I have obviously uh, been big time in support of both Miles Turner and Trace Jackson Davis. With what Trace Jackson Davis has accomplished, and I know that the resume as far as, you know, a Big Ten title or resume as far as the NCAA tournament is not what anybody wants it to be. But his resume of production in points over 2,000, in rebounds over 1,000, does he get sold short, you think, by a lot of IU fans out there for what he has accomplished in that Hoosier uniform? Uh, there probably is an element of that. And, you know, I, I do think ultimately when you evaluate, you know, anybody at the end of their respective career, team accomplishments have to matter. But if you can put those to the side, I mean, undoubtedly it's one of the best careers ever. And, and Bloomington, I was shocked last night when Dave Revson said that he was the first player in school history to have 2,000 points and 1,000 rebounds. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, Benson or Walt Bellamy or, you know, Ray Tolbert, you know, I mean, Alan Henderson, you know, I, I was, I was stunned when he said that. And it's not like he's had, you know, this year clearly is the most perimeter health he's had. It's not like he's been playing with, you know, bona fide backcourts or, 
you know, great point guard play that has fed him the ball and, you know, so many of these, you know, terrific situations. You know, he's had a coaching change, um, which, you know, if you look at the history of Indiana, obviously the last 20 years would be different. But before that, there certainly was great continuity from a coaching staff standpoint. Um, and I, I think the element of his game, John, that has probably impressed me the most this year is, you know, I think we all were like, all right, you know, is he going to shoot the ball a little bit more from the perimeter? Is he going to have a little bit more of a right hand to his game? He's done such an unbelievable job of continuing to play to his strengths, but also his ability to pass and his decision-making with the double teams I, I think that's the difference in his game this season and has taken it to another level. I mean, obviously the points and rebounds speak for themselves, but um, he's got to be averaging close to five, five assists per game in Big Ten play. I thought that was a huge part of Saturday. I thought when, you know, Purdue doubled, you know, they would kind of run the double at him, it felt like, early on, and Trace just found such a beautiful balance. Of, and guys knocked down shots, too, and then that – takes you away from sure, being able to do sure. that. Yeah, no doubt. And I I thought he did a wonderful job on Saturday of like being decisive yep. when he needed to be, but then also when he felt like he needed to be patient, pull you know, pull the ball back out, then attack. He did a really nice job. And again, this year he certainly has better perimeter shooting around him. Uh but yeah, individually, I mean if it weren't for Zach Eady, you'd probably say Trace Jackson Davis is the runaway favorite, certainly for the Big Ten, and would you know, be, you know, probably him and uh, the Wilson kid from Kansas would be the favorite for national player of the year. So Kevin Bowen with us, you know, I, I agree with you on the whole passing game. I told him this last week. I never thought that he would evolve into the type of on the floor leader, vocal leader that he has become. I was always questioning. I would always say that to Don Fisher. And then I actually asked him that last week. And I think he's accomplished something in that category that maybe he didn't think he was was going to end up being very, you know, the most incredibly nice kid you'll ever meet. There's no question sure. about that. But a little bit more soft-spoken, wasn't really, you know, that cool about getting after guys. And, you know, now you can see that level of leadership. And he talked about the role that Mike Woodson has played in developing that leadership. I think that's also huge, along with all the other aspects we see on the floor to his development. Yeah, and obviously so desperately needed for that program when you've lacked that, in my opinion, and you even lacked it this past offseason with some guys and and choices off the floor. Um, And boy, yeah, he does. I mean, you, you would know far better than I. Gosh, he seems like such a nice kid. But incredibly yeah, nice when, and, and i thought sometimes i always thought man you're too nice <laughs> you know yeah. you're almost too nice but that's that's not but the case i feel like when he gets between the lines there is a little bit of that edge there is. that 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 he has um and i think part of it and again you know this full well john it's not like he was the dominant sixth grader in the center grove school district or even averaging 15 a game as a freshman on varsity like you know he's kind of blossomed into this and so, you know, maybe that comes from a little bit of a, it took him time to get into that, you know, full-on leadership role. But I think he has a really, really good grasp of realizing this is it. And, you know, for Indiana, Jalen Huchifino and Trace Jackson Davis, there's probably a pretty good chance they're not here next fall. And for Trace, this is probably it for him. And the fact that, you know, he's had such an understanding of that and has been able to grasp it and, you know, good job by him and the staff and kind of collaborating on the, hey, let's sit out some of these games around Christmas 
I think that ended up being a huge thing for him. I mean, I haven't seen him really favor his back. Or I remember that Iowa game. I mean, he was struggling yeah. at times there physically, and it just seems like they've gotten that figured out. And he is unque- I mean, him and Zach Eady, unanimous first team All Americans. He's got the quickest second jump in college basketball. His his second jump. I mean, as soon as that ball goes up, he's already into that second jump. Yeah, pogo stick, and that was his two thousand point. If I'm not mistaken, yeah, last it night was, was, yeah. was one of those putbacks. And you, if you think about a couple games where Indiana has been really real and late. Minnesota and last night. I mean, last night that scoring drought was like eight or nine minutes, and they took a timeout and they drew up a race Thompson, or it ended up being a race Thompson fadeaway out of the timeout. Probably about the thirty seventh thing you wanted out of that timeout. And in Minnesota's case, he got the offensive rebound off the free throw to ice that game. And then last night, that putback was absolutely huge. I know Galloway probably iced it for good with his putback and the three point play, but you know they made a couple plays late that. It won't show up any highlight reel at the end of the year, but they made some plays that Rutgers usually makes against them. And Trace getting that put back, Galloway getting that offensive rebound. Again, those are just steps where, you know, last year they beat Purdue and then Michigan, a bad Michigan team, spokes them at Assembly Hall. Last night, you don't have the emotional hangover and you beat, you know, a really good Rutgers team. Uh, in your own building. I know a lot of IU fans were talking about how rough and overly physical and how they hate the brand of basketball of Steve Peichel and Rutgers. And I told them earlier, look beyond that and look at the fact that an IU team of the past, as you mentioned, would have absolutely wilted in those moments of physicality. This team, even at home, found a way to overcome it. That last night was a big deal to me. And again, whether you like it or not, if you want to do anything in March, you're going to have to win in different ways. Yes. I mean, no matter what sort of second, third weekend run you see out of any team, you're going to have to win in different ways. And, you know, that's why it has me thinking a little bit with with Purdue. I, I know it's kind of like a stupid thing to even say, but would it be well served for Purdue in the month of March if at some point here in February, Zach Eady just has a game where he gets two fouls in the first eight minutes? And he gets four fouls by the 10-minute mark of the second half, and Purdue has to play with Zach Eady only playing 20 minutes. You know, would that be well served? Obviously, they want to win the Big Ten. They want to maintain number one seed, number one overall seed, all of those things. But I think finding different ways to win, being thrown into different situations, knowing full well the whistle in the Big Ten is probably going to be different than what you experience in the tournament. I, I think that's something that, you know, could be good for Purdue at some point here coming up in the month of February. So uh, Kevin Bowen morning show, Kevin in query that's seven until 10 a.m. Weekday mornings right here on 107.5, 93.5, the fan stream, the app, HD radio, all that stuff. Uh, just like us on YouTube live as well. He's on the Andy Moore automotive group hotline. So, and Zach Kiefer and I had this conversation, Stephen Holder, yesterday as well. Are, are you in belief that the reason why we don't know the next head coach of the Colts is because he's going to be coordinating the NFC champions offense coming up on Sunday evening? You know, if you were to tell me, all right, you know, here's a $10 bill, you put it on one candidate right now, I, I'd probably put it on Shane Steichen. I don't say it with, like, an absurd amount of confidence. Um, I think a lot of the Colts' silence, a lot of the Colts' fear and their thoroughness throughout all of this and the fact that they 
don't want anything to leak all stems from Josh McDaniels in 2018. All of it. Um, I think Chris Ballard carries a pretty heavy amount of embarrassment for that and a lot of egg on his face. And a lot of this is like, like kind of self-owned. You know, Ballard, I think, would, would tell you this. And they don't want to go through that. He doesn't want to go through that again. And while that might seem far-fetched and, you know, the odds of that happening are pretty slim, I do think that's a big part of wanting to be so exhaustive in this process. So um, I, I have not, like, gotten the feeling that, you know, all of a sudden they've told five candidates no, no. I, you know, maybe they've told some. Maybe Ajero Evero got word that, you know, he could go pursue defensive coordinator jobs and obviously took that job with Frank Wright in Carolina. But um, I, if I were willing to throw a little bit out there, I guess I'd throw it on Steichen. But even then, I don't say it with a huge amount of confidence. I think if we get to Friday, John, and there still hasn't been, you know, any leaks, that would lend me to think a little bit more that it is Steichen. Because obviously, um, if, if I'm not mistaken, obviously you got Biennemi and Steichen in the Super Bowl. I think Biennemi is represented by a different agent. I think um, Steichen and Ballard have the same agent. So clearly you would have – motives for both of those camps it's the same camp if you will to want to keep it quiet and I mean if you're Steichen I mean you are calling plays in the Super Bowl I I don't think you'd want to be dealing with your phone blowing up or anything like that in kind of the 48 hours 72 hours leading up to Sunday whereas if it were a Brian Callahan or a Reed Morris I think you could have a little bit more of a, of a leakage or, you know, any of those other candidates that you want to throw, throw out there. Kevin Bowen just said leakage. He's on the Andy Moore Automotive <laughs> Group hotline. Have you have you eliminated Jeff Saturday? Gosh, you're making me choke on that. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I'd be surprised if Jeff Saturday is the head coach. Um, I mean, it's Jim Irsay, so it's probably foolish for me to – you know, make that in a concrete statement. But, yes, I would be surprised if Jeff Saturday was the head coach. If the Colts bring home the Minnesota game or the Dallas game, and certainly if they brought home the Philly game, I'm not talking about all of them, maybe just one of the three, do you think this is a different situation regarding Jeff Saturday? Well, that's a good one. Um. I mean, hell, if they win two of those three, Ursay probably builds in the statue next to Peyton out front. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it probably is. I, I do. I absolutely do. Yeah. I think you could argue, too, if just the embarrassment wasn't so bad. Like, if, if December into January did not unfold to that level. Because, again, we, you know, you throw out there Minnesota in the second half. You throw out there Dallas in the fourth quarter. The last two games were, I would argue – right up there in terms of embarrassment. The Giants hadn't beat a single team all year by more than eight points. They beat you by, what was it, 38-10, I think it was, or 28 points. And then the final week of the season, you get down again by double digits to the Texans, the team that's getting ready to fire their head coach. And obviously what happens at the end kind of speaks for itself. So, yeah, I mean, if you throw in a couple of those wins – Certainly, and I think if you just lessen the level of embarrassment in, in Ursay's eyes, I do think um, he would have stepped in. But, you know, I might be giving Jim too much credit here, and I might be premature with this thought, but, you know, we are a month into this. And if you look at Ursay's tweet yesterday, I mean, that's exactly what Chris Ballard has wanted. 
out of this process is to be extremely thorough, be very patient, interview a ton of candidates, um, you know, not get into any, you know, rash decisions like he did in 2018. And so in a way, I, I do feel like, and again, it might be a little bit premature to say, but I think the Jim Irsay over the last month is a little bit different than the Jim Irsay we've seen over the last year. And I think you've said it before, John, like you need to kind of give your organization and let the people you hire, let them handle those responsibilities for why you hired them. Now, I think, you know, it's fair to have an argument that, again, why should Chris Ballard still be here in year seven? That's fine. But if he's going to be here, you know, isn't there an element of let the GM do his job? It's like Kevin Bowens with us. Do you think, and you, you mentioned some things here, but do you think an element to how, and I, I don't know how much, if at all, we've talked about this, an element of how that season went down, especially with all the losing down the stretch from basically, you know, week 11 on. When did you see, if at all, these guys where you could honestly point the finger and said, have they checked out? Have some of these guys player-wise checked out? I think there was a think there was something we could go on as far as these guys checking out or each and every game did you think well they gave this effort but yeah I um I mean it's certainly a thought that ran through my head um it's a question I asked Ballard at the season ending press conference I mean he was very protective of his players and, and didn't feel like he got that vibe at all um again how much of that is just you know him wanting to protect them and who knows I I think you got to probably take each individual case study. I, I tend to think, you know, football's a game where if you are checking out, boy, I mean, you got to be worried about physically just your, you know, injury situation, career, if you're going to half-ass it. And I don't know, maybe preparation-wise, you don't spend as much time during that week. Um, so I, I don't know if I can point to, like, a definite – you know, that guy, you know, he, whatever, didn't give 110% on that play. And that guy did that. I just think it was a bad football team. It was bad. And, yes, the embarrassment reached different levels late in the year. Um, I mean, I guess you could argue, you know, Giants, he competed really – or uh, the Cowboys, he competed really well for three quarters. And Vikings, a half. Maybe what you saw against the Giants and what you saw against the Texans is where you did have guys, you know, oh, yeah, when is that flight to the Caribbean? And maybe my Wednesday time spent at the complex isn't as extensive as it was. Maybe there was a little bit of that. I tend to think that there wasn't as much as we just tend to think. I think we always think, oh, late in the year, you know, everybody just checks out and that's how it goes. Um, I just think it was a bad football team, and that's why, to me, so much of this is more personnel-based than it is um, coaching-based. It's a Kevin Bowen morning show, Kevin and Query. That is 7 until 10 a.m. here on The Fan. He's on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Anything that you foresee, trade deadline-wise, you think the Pacers may find something interesting out there that they might try to add for the future here? Yeah, I'll be curious to see what you do with the surplus of centers. Um, I mean, you have a massive log jam at a position that, you know, teams sometimes don't even play a true center, you know, for 48 minutes. Obviously, Miles, you know, whatever, 35 minutes a night. And then lately, Daniel Tice has picked up, you know, the other 13. Uh, but Goga continues to be a DNP. Isaiah Jackson and Jalen Smith have kind of slotted into that, and there doesn't appear to be much of a future for either of them at that four position. They, they just seem to be 
Aaron Neesmith, O'Shea Brissett. So I would like to think you could pair one of those guys with, I don't know, maybe one of the picks that you have or maybe with Chris Duarte and maybe you get a higher pick in the first round. Maybe you get a young piece that, you know, it's kind of similar to some of these pieces that you added to where, okay, we have too much here. We have too little here. Let's find a team where the reverse of that is the case and let's try and get a little bit of a fit. And, you know, can you get back what you're giving away a little bit in, you know, Duarte and Goga, former top 20 picks, or, you know, I still think it's early on Isaiah Jackson. I probably wouldn't move him. But can you look at that and say, all right, we don't have a ton of playing time for them here. You have a ton of playing time for them there. Why don't we make a trade uh, with that? That would be something that I would explore. But, you know, if we would have this conversation back in the fall, I would have been much more in the pro buddy healed trade camp. No way I'd do that. I think he means too much to you. I think shooting is a skill set that doesn't age as much as others. He's extremely durable. Um, and I think he helps Tyrese Halliburton a whole lot. It helps Benedict Mather a whole lot. So I would definitely keep him. Uh, so that would probably be where I would be looking. Duarte and then um, one of your bigs. So Evan Sidery came on with me at Basketball News a couple of days ago, and I'd, I'd ask him about the trade deadline. And, you know, he, he was talking about Ananobi, talking about John Collins. I think he had mentioned, and who knows if this is indeed the case, but he had mentioned that maybe, a, you know, a couple of picks – and a present player could end up getting Ananobi. And maybe one pick and a present player could get John Collins. Would either one of those, and again, this is so incredibly hypothetical, either one of those interest you with either one of those players in mind for the Pacers? Give me those names one more time. Sorry. No, oh, it was a it was it was it was two picks. So a couple of first-rounders, and I'm assuming somebody like Duarte, for example. This is what he said for Ananobi. And then one pick, and then Duarte for John Collins. And again, that's incredibly hypothetical. But since I brought it up, would you do something like that with either? Yeah, I I think I would do it for OG. Uh, I don't know. Collins has kind of always rubbed me a little bit in the wrong way. I I, I think he's a fine player. I I think he's a little overhyped. I think he would certainly fit a need on your roster from a four-man standpoint, but I don't know if I would give up that. I certainly wouldn't touch your own lottery pick for Collins. I mean, Ananobi to me is like very close to what you're missing in terms of a long, you know, strong defender, could play the three, could play the four, get the vibe that he would want to be here. Obviously, that would be huge because I think he's a free agent coming up next year Um, and he just seems like he wouldn't demand the ball I mean he'd be pretty accepting of his role I you know I I think ever since Indiana you see it on an annual basis he continues to get better and and just as a great defender because how great of a rim protector Miles is this continues to be you know bottom five team in scoring and you i just think you've got to get better well they, they can't guard the anybody on the perimeter man i mean they can guard yeah. nobody and, and part of it i hate to say this but part of it is kind of on them i think they could if they would and they just haven't i guess learned yet how to now you know buddy hill notwithstanding because buddy hill sometimes will struggle defensively and the fact that in that cleveland game for whatever reason rick carlisle went with a small lineup and he got beat up both on the interior and then gave up all those threes that was concerning but 
Yeah, I just think in a wing-driven league, you need somebody like that. And, you know, if you were kind of map out like a starting five moving forward, okay, is it, you know, Halliburton, Heald, Matherin, you have OG, you have Miles, then your bench unit would be like a Nemhard, Eric Neesmith. Um, you know, obviously you st- would still have some other pieces to fill in that bench group. You could play around the things in terms of, okay, Neesmith at some nights could – you know, be in kind of a closing unit because I do think he's shown signs to where if other teams are going small, you can go small with him. I just think it would give you a lot of options. And this team right now, I think, lacks that. I think that they're asking way too much of Neesmith Smith to play him at the four. O'Shea Brissett is really their only, uh, you know, power forward type of guy. And I don't think the Pacers want to do the Neesmith thing. I think they're doing it because they feel like they have to in the short term, because again, they promised Jalen Smith at the start of the year, you, you'd be our starting four. I think they think that sort of body type, maybe not as big as Jalen Smith, but that type of guy is more of what you'd want. So I think I would do the OG thing. Um, it, it does sound like this draft in the top 10 has got some, you know, pretty intriguing pieces, but you know, I also can acknowledge that as much as I think the draft is the route you have to go in this market, you're not going to hit on an annual basis. I mean, hell, you could argue that if you look at, the year before draft, Chris Duarte and Isaiah Jackson, for as much promise as you saw with them in their rookie seasons, they're all of a sudden trending in a direction where you, you question how much they should be a part of your future. Again, I think it's early on Jackson, but Duarte, I think a lot of people are ready to be done with them. So I would do the OG thing. Um, yeah, I would. What you guys got coming up in the morning? We've got – I actually think – I was about to say we have Adam Vinatieri. I think we were doing Adam Vinatieri on Friday. Yeah. Uh, he's joining us um, from the Super Bowl. And so tomorrow, I know we got Scott Agnes talk trade deadline, Mike DeCourcy to uh, preview Purdue-Iowa tomorrow night and talk a little bit about the Big Ten and then uh, that keeper. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll be listening mm-hmm. then tomorrow morning. Do you think they do anything trade deadline-wise? No, I don't. Not even one of the, you know, one of the circles. I would like to see it. I would like to see it because I've called it, you know, instead of, you know, buying or selling, I've called it building. Uh, I'd like to see them find something that they think is a future piece that's already made instead of relying on picks and then having to come in and baby picks until they're they're good to go. I'd like to see somebody that's already made piece. I think that'd be pretty cool. Do I expect it? No. I like the building. Uh, that's a good it's a good term to you. Yeah, I, I just I think it was Friday night, and I get it. Part of this is they were fully healthy, and they had like three former first round picks and like recent first round picks just did not play coach's decision. And it's like okay, that's you know you could I think move one of those guys, and again maybe you find a piece that can you know help you out and enter the the rotation at a spot where maybe you are looking for different body types or more playing time. So. Um, I, I believe Tony East. To Tony East has something at uh, Fan Nation or uh, SI, wherever he works, um, suggesting that Rick Carlisle was quoted as saying, "Very doubtful anything happens." Got it. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, obviously, Dominoes. They're in a position to where, you know, how much did they know a couple of years ago that James Harden would be on the move, and they kind of tagged along with with that one. They've got some cap space. They've got some picks. They've got some veterans. They can yeah. get involved. If something happens, so we'll see how it all unfolds. You got it. Kev, we'll be listening. Thanks, buddy.